0: Hello and welcome to the Runway VC podcast, a podcast where we interview experts and instructors in the travel and aviation industries to learn about their journeys, how they're making the future, and what tips they have for people wanting or even trying to make their own mark. Please enjoy this episode and remember you can always subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher by just searching runway.vc and hitting the subscribe button. VC podcast. We have the founder and CEO of Glow Airlines, a new regional airline startup based out of New Orleans, that is flying now to five cities. Is that correct? Yeah, we actually start
1: our um, latest route this Friday from New Orleans to Destin, Fort Walton Beach. So we're excited
0: about that. There you go. And you took your first flight last November.
1: We did. We uh, started this, started standing up this business. it really, the first idea for it was 2010, late 2010. And then uh, we really started in earnest in 2013. And we were very delighted and really proud to have our first flight last November between New Orleans and Little Rock. And since then, we've added New Orleans to Memphis, New Orleans to Shreveport. We've added New Orleans to Fort Walton Beach this Friday. And we've been flying Little Rock to Fort Walton Beach
0: since uh, Easter weekend, March. Okay. So before we take a deep dive into GLOW and, and how you started that, I want to talk about a little bit more about your background, because uh, you were not an aviation guy, correct? Well, I wasn't. I certainly have now. But recovering, um, <laughs> I, I, I got still a licensed attorney.
1: Um, I was more of a, a kind of the business side of things with the law. Um, and I mean, the whole impetus for the project was quite simply we couldn't get there from here. And, you know, we'd spend... I say we, I mean colleagues, friends, uh, clients, etc. We would spend just hours and hours in airports, connecting flights, missing flights, driving super long distances. Just an incredible, inefficient way to do things. And you know, I started looking at it and saying, "There's got to be, there's got to be something here." And I almost became a de facto charter broker for people in groups, you know, wanting to take a trip or go to a football game. And hey, Trey, can you put together a plan for us and we'll split the costs and all that. So I got to thinking, you know, geez, if I'm having this much trouble, my friends are having this much trouble, people don't even know are having this much trouble and calling me, maybe there's an opportunity. And so quite simply, that's, that's how it started. I mean, I've always liked airplanes and, and things like that, but I, I never thought I'd find myself you know, in the airline business in this, in this fashion for sure.
0: Sure. And so airlines, they're not your typical startup uh, story. It's not, you know, Two people in a garage uh, working for no pay—it it requires a lot of startup capital, I would imagine. Um, how did you go about validating that that lean approach and making sure that before you went out and spent millions of dollars on a you know new jet or something like that, uh, you knew that there was some kind of business there?
1: Well, you know, it's it's in the sense of uh, putting together you know, the model and and putting other information and. You know, I put almost uh, 20,000 miles on a rent car, and I would just drive. I would set up meetings in cities, with airports, with chambers, with companies. And, and truly, it was as simple, in some cases, to t- taking out the book of lists of the top 100 businesses and just start calling and say, hey, can I talk to your travel manager? Can I have a meeting? And, you know, most people were fairly receptive to it. Um, air service is a pretty nonpartisan issue as, as things go. And so we spent months and months, almost a year, really trying to validate the information that we thought would prove up the demand for these city bears. But at the end of the day, you can, you can make whatever you want to say on paper and try to back it up and validate it in various different ways. But at the end of the day, if you put a plane in the air, you really don't know. I mean, a great example is uh, prior to us beginning our Shreveport flight from New Orleans, for example, you know, historically there was some data, but that route hadn't been served in, in a decade or more. And so when you look at, the information that the industry uses for O and D, you know, how many people are going between a city pair each day. The New Orleans Shreveport city pair data indicated that I think it was 1.2 people a day that were flying between New Orleans and Shreveport. And of course, our first flight we ever ran, we blew that number out of the water. Right. Uh, we had 14 people on our first flight. So, yeah, it, it, it's difficult. Data is data, you know, but the old saying, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Until you really take the risk and put the airplane in the air, it's, it's very difficult to validate um fully what you're doing and there's, there's no simple test for it i mean you you know putting together an aviation business with all the different players and all the different vendors and of course critically the equipment and critically the personnel is long lead time stuff and so you have to kind of commit to it and uh just put the pedal down uh you know we've been through every pothole and trap in the road um still going through them just like any any business but you know the the, the timing Trying everything to time up correctly is very scary because at the end of the day, we were selling tickets. When we got our authority to sell tickets, we started selling tickets in September, and we knew that we had to have that aircraft ready to fly on the 15th of November. We were always confident it was going to happen. Of course it did. But you know, that, that last day or two that weekend, we flew we, our first flight was a Sunday afternoon. No one in my office slept from Wednesday until Sunday when that plane up because there were so many things. We were picking up things from FedEx and uh, driving stuff down from Dallas. I mean, it was, it was a mess, but that's just how it, that's just how it works. mean, anybody that's ever started a business, whether it be, I don't care what it is. Um, when you throw open the doors, you got to throw open the doors. And in our case, the last thing we wanted to do was, uh, call everybody and say, sorry, we we can't fly today. That was not really an option. We had to really press hard. And I'm telling you, you know, the people aspect of our business, I mean, I tell people all the time, I'm not really an airline business, I'm in the people business, because that really truly is on both sides. You know, our employees and people we work with are so critical. And of course, our customers are super critical. You can't have one without the other, right? So we are you know, people management firm in, in the sense of uh, what we do and what I do most of the day is manage expectations from customers, vendors, uh, clients. I mean, it's, it's all constantly
0: people. Yeah. And so you talk about people. How did you, with your... Um, I guess, unconventional way into the airline industry by just saying, hey, we're going to try and see what it looks like to start an airline and, and serve these markets. How did you go about recruiting and more importantly, learning what types of people you needed to start this airline?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there's the obvious. Uh, you have to have pilots, you have to have uh, mechanics and those people have kind of uh, self uh, describe or chase the, the fundamental skills and education required to do that. So that type of employee is much different than the types of employees you have, say on the operational side, on the company side. And yeah, really, we were just looking, I was looking for and our team, we had to have some folks with some good experience, which we do. I mean, we've got over 100 years combined in the airline business on the, on the executive side. And when it came to uh, customers, passengers, sales and marketing, things of that nature, we really looked for, It wasn't airline people because when I looked at it, everything the airlines were doing, we we wanted to do the opposite of because, you know, the airlines have created such a poor travel experience. And and I will say it's actually gotten better. But when we were first looking at this, everything was just in the toilet. And so we said I said, you know, the people I'm going to go get to be my marketing folks, to be my PR folks, to be uh, my uh, customer relations folks. I don't want them to have anything to do with the airline business. So we looked we looked all over the place. We got people out of finance. We got people out of the service industry. Uh, we've got people that weren't working at all, that were stay-at-home moms. I mean, they had, they have, obviously had a skill set, but, you know, from the executive side of things, it was not overly airline-specific. It, it was where it had to be. But as far as, you know, making things different, um, you know, good people are good people. I don't think they could fit in any industry. And it's an exciting industry. It's really unique. I mean, it, it's not many people have the opportunity to work for startup air carriers. Um, so in that regard, it sort of, it, it attracts a certain type of personality and individual who is okay with the risk and okay with um, putting a lot into something that is not yet going. And, you know, we, we did a really good job, I think, of finding the right type of folks to, to buy into that.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned that you pulled people in from all over the industry, different industries and, um, 2010 when this idea started uh was one of the worst times in aviation in the aviation industry as far as passengers go you know almost everyone took a hit to uh with the recession uh you know starting in 2008 and and those effects trickled and still some airports and some cities are still trying to climb out of uh that hole that was created so i think that the fact that you started uh during that time point did do you think that that helped and gave you kind of an inside view as to what was working with some airlines and what people were kind of fed up, you know, getting fed up with and paying for too much. Or, or do you think that um, hindered you as the airlines started to lean their business models down? Well, in in, in
1: some respects, it was very helpful to us. And in other respects, it was very hurtful to attempting to uh, get the financing in place and get all the moving parts in place. Because as you mentioned, 2010, 2011 was just really not that great for anybody um, economically, and, and trying to peddle a new air service, um, lawyer <laughs> was not uh, top of the list when it came to investment funds and banks and things of that nature. So, you know, in some regards, I think it, it's been helpful that we were pushed back to really start this in 2013 because the economy has improved. As everybody knows, all prices down, so that you know those those factors are contributing to the success of a lot of the airlines now. But you know, I'm not so sure there's ever a good time to start a business. You know, if you, and I don't mean that negatively, I just mean at any point in time, it's really difficult. It's really hard all the time. Sure. And you know, if you, if you if you find something that's just so simple to start, and people are throwing money at you. Um, good for you. Uh, but we we didn't have that experience. Uh, it was just it was a tough slog. It was very difficult. Um, and so people say now, well, geez, you know, with consolidation, you got the four majors and they're just printing money and they are doing very well right now. Um, there's no doubt about it. But if you look historically, uh, the airline business never made money as, as a business, as right. a unit. put uh, it all together, it's, it's a loss maker. And so these last couple of years, these last most recent quarters, have been exceptionally good for shareholders and, and for um, those businesses. But, you know, historically, it's a It's a money loser. So, you know, we looked at it and, you know, our specific model. um, I think it was really a blessing that we got pushed back a little bit with the economy of where it was. And so, right now, the conditions um, are pretty good. You know, they're not all star, but they're pretty good. And it's given us a good opportunity to come into our markets and, you know, begin our growth.
0: Yeah. And so, how did that pitch go? uh you know you mentioned and and i'm sure you're still pitching uh you mentioned that you were traveling last week i'm sure going to and and talking to different companies uh or or like you said financiers how did it go from hey i'm an attorney um you know i've got some people in new orleans that have asked me to fly charter some planes but i think there's a a real need for regional carriers or new regional carrier how did <laughs> how did how did it go about? As you can imagine, I've, I've heard it all
1: from being laughed out of a room to having the, someone threaten to call the mental health professional or the police. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's interesting uh, because one of my, I guess, secondary crusades will be in my life is to try to bring uh, the availability of financing to places outside of the traditional places like New York, Chicago, Miami, LA. Uh, and. and you know, here in Louisiana it's just very hard uh, it's very very tough uh, there are pockets of uh, places here that uh, are funds funds that look to invest in small things or you know maybe a family office or things here or there but the wealth concentration while in New Orleans is pretty good compared to the rest of the mid south Gulf South uh, comparably to the rest of the country is poor so you know it's one of, believe it or not one of the more difficult things we had was educating, a potential investor of where we were going. Um, sadly, everybody knows New Orleans because uh, it's New Orleans, it's Mardi Gras, it's a worldwide destination uh, for convention, business, tourism, and anything fun. Uh, when you start talking about Little Rock Reef or uh, you know, Montgomery, Alabama, Memphis, for uh, Walton Beach, people don't really you know, it's sad, but they, they really don't know much about it. So trying to educate them locally on the opportunity uh, was difficult. Um, now that we are running in those markets, it's less so, but you know, it's a challenge. Everybody likes the idea of aviation, at least most people find it appealing, sexy, romantic, whatever they want to call it, but at the end of the day, it's a business that has to work. And so, educating potential investors on the project wasn't as difficult as educating them on uh, the markets that we believed existed because, frankly, a lot of them they
0: didn't even understand what we were trying to do. But we finally got over the hump and here we are. And now was it friends and family at first, which then spread to your traditional venture capital or do you have traditional venture capital? I mean, is it, is that.
1: We've used every channel imaginable uh, from <laughs> getting a credit card with a credit line on it to go uh, yeah. do things. when We first started to uh, me putting a significant amount of my own money into the venture. You know, that's a question everybody always asks well, you know, how much, how much of your own money do you, are you willing to put into it? And this is my view, but if you're not willing to put everything into it, it probably isn't worth doing. And if you walk into a traditional financing place or a, a venture fund, or an angel fund, or an investment bank or whatever, they're going to ask you, like, well, how much do you have in this? And if you tell them, well, I don't want to put much more in this, I want you to pay for it, uh, good luck. Uh, because if you don't believe in it, then how can you expect somebody else to? And so, sure. you know, I, I would certainly encourage... Um, I, I, look, I'm not suggesting you should uh, ruin your life, over it, but if, if you're not going to be committed to it financially, um, you may want well to have a second thought on what you're doing. So we we've done it all different ways. I mean, every, everything available to us,
0: um, we've used. Yeah. And when it comes to hearing, you know, you're crazy or just an outright no, uh, how do you go back and take that? Do you remember a time where that response hits you the hardest
1: you know, not really.
0: I mean, the sense of um,
1: the, the hard, the harder ones, the hardest one is not somebody saying, well, it's interesting, but no, thanks. Or, you know, geez, you only look at real estate deals or geez, you only look at uh, medical technology. And, you know, that's all fine. The hardest ones is when you get interest and you spend an hard amount of time and effort and money, frankly, getting it together in anticipation of having the opportunity to get the funding and it, it falls apart at the last minute or they ball off at the last minute. That's, that's very frustrating. Um, the outright no or the outright get lost kid, that didn't bother me. It never did because I knew what we were doing had potential. I knew we'd find the right people. Um, but it, is, it was very disheartening to have everything pretty much in place. And we lost the deal um, literally at the last minute. And, you know, it's so hard to stand all this stuff up and keep all the balls in the air at the same time when you kind of throw the switch. You got to keep going. And we threw the switch almost fully. And then we we lost the the funding. And so that was really tough. But as far as just average pitch, it it never bothered me, really, honestly.
0: Yeah. And so how do you then what's the time after that? You know, when when you put all this work into it, you sit back and and drink some makers and move on. Or do you just say, you know, well, we've gotten this work done. Is there anybody else that we can plug in? You know.
1: Well, you know, yeah. To answer your first question,
0: yeah, there's been a lot of makers uh, around the world,
1: <laughs> office, you know, lately and since we started. But you know, I mean, obviously, we had to. I mean, this is not something I could do myself, and so we obviously did bring in some quality and talented folks. Uh, and when we started, it's interesting. Uh, you know, it's the kind of the same interview that a lot of people tell the same story of. You know, well, geez, we do everything around here. And I'll never ask, I never ask my employees anything I wouldn't do. And then, you know, that's answer the phone or take the trash out or make the coffee. And that is all true. And we all did that. But it's interesting, the more sophisticated and the more real the business has become, the harder it is to do that. You really have to, we didn't want to silo model our employees and say, you just do this. Because um, you have to have some flexibility. And we have a lot of flexibility within our, within our employee, employee group. But you know when you when you have everybody doing everything, no one's doing anything, sort of thing, and a lot of things can get out of hand quickly. A lot of things get lost, um, so you really have to refocus. I found energies of what your key people are doing to make sure that they're watching that tent and that tent only. And if they have time, that means they're not watching the tent because there's never time in this business. With, with uh, the, the lines of business in which we operate, and need constant attention. So. Yeah, it took everybody running full steam, doing everything, um, to now seven and a half months in operating. We've had to kind of refocus, I guess, our attentions on what we are, I don't want to say good at, but what we were responsible for, because you got to watch everything so closely. And that's been a little challenging, but it's, it's working out pretty well.
0: Yeah, and so I, and I took a glance at your, uh, I guess, senior management the coo and your uh, your cfo i believe and both of them have extensive airline industry experience you said you mentioned that you've got over 100 years of combined experience in the industry how do you go in about convincing or recruiting those types of people to work for a new airline
1: well twofold number one um it's not as hard as you think simply because, yes, our senior managers and our advisors have had decades upon decades of experience with the big guys. Um, very few people out there that are interested in something like this have ever had the experience of starting one. And starting an airline business and running an airline business are two totally different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are literally night and day. And if you think about it, in theory, the airline business should be a very boring business in the sense of it's a schedule it should be the same thing every day you know monday through saturday or sunday or whatever days you're flying you know in theory everything should be scheduled and boring of course it doesn't happen that way it's just the opposite and so when you get into a startup environment and everybody knows a startup is, is fun uh it's very stressful but it's fun and so far senior guys having the opportunity to be on I guess the venture side of things, the startup side of things, it is really intriguing and appealing. Um, it is again totally different than what probably they've been, well, what they have been doing, which is senior roles in, in large airlines. And so, when you take them out of that, them in a startup environment. It's 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 interesting because they face their own challenges. You can see you can you see you know they've been so used to the process base of a based gigantic billion dollar companies to starting off on a shoestring. And starting it up, but the excitement and kind of the being a part of something so unique
0: really uh is a big
1: draw i mean we've had great success attracting good people and money of
0: them. and now on the uh i don't want to say lower because i know at a at a stage like glow everyone is important you know i imagine one employee not showing up uh to do their job or having or leaving going somewhere else puts a puts a monkey wrench in the whole operation um but when you come down to the pilots and those you know the, the day-to-day um, service provider, you know your service employees, how are you hit how are you recruiting them? Are you seeing, are you seeing a lot of issues recruiting pilots specifically with all this talk about pilot shortage? And is it concern that you know when, when your pilots get up enough hours that they leave and, and go elsewhere? Two, well, two parts of that answer. Number one,
1: we have not had issues attracting uh, quality candidates to be pilots. Um, you know, I have learned this and I, I always knew this, but pilots like to do one thing. They like to fly. Mm-hmm. And our model, we offer a very compelling quality of life. Uh, that is your home every night. You know, we don't do overnights at outstations at the moment. All of our aircraft, they can spend the night here in New Orleans. And so from the perspective of the crew, that would be the in-flight crew and the pilot flight deck. It's very appealing because they're, they, don't, they don't have to go get an apartment somewhere. They're not going to be stuck on the road for four, five, six days training trip. So they're home every night. They can see their children. They can walk the dog. They can do all those great things. So for us, attracting quality candidates has not been an issue uh, to this point. We have not had uh, attrition based on an hourly accumulation. But um, I think you're quite right uh, that in some sense we are a training ground, uh, and a lot of the smaller players are uh, right. pilots. And when a pilot does reach the magic number, um, you know, we, we pay very well. We're, we're very competitive with uh, salaries for the big guys, and particularly the size of aircraft we're operating. Mm-hmm. And the quality of life again is very good. You know, that being said, some of our younger guys may um, find it appealing to want to go uh, work for the for the majors and, and that's just gonna happen and that's just part of life in this business. But you know some of our guys that are, um, I guess, deeper into their career, um, are enjoying the fact that they are home. They're enjoying the fact that it's, it's a, it's a pretty easy, uh, scheduled in terms of time away from home, which there really is none of it. And so I think that quality of life will give us a boost in retention, but you know, like I said, so maybe some of the more junior guys, uh, would, you know, maybe their dream is to go fly triple sevens for Delta. I mean, that's, sure. that's great. I mean, I, I'm just glad that we could help them get there, frankly, but, um to this point and you know it, this could obviously change at any time but to this point we have had pretty huge success on the flight deck and, and the in-flight has been a phenomenal response to that we get i got dozens of applications a week for for in-flight positions um and people yeah it's exciting it's neat it's new people um you know if, if you're a flight attendant that cabin is your office and you control it you're the only person in there and so right. it's kind of a feeling and you know flying is a neat experience and you get to meet all kind of people, and you're part of a great team effort, and it's just kind of fun. So, in flight, in fact, I wanted to trained as a flight attendant uh, just because, but I, I couldn't do it. Starting a business and training at the same time, maybe one day. But um, that part has been a great, uh, great fun because you know they are the number one person facing our customer every day. It's not me, I and mean, I'm out there a lot, uh, much as I can be, but you know, they are our main customer interaction. People think of, oh, they're, they're, they're talking to the flight center. That's too low to them. And so finding the right type of people for that uh, is very important. But for us, we've been pretty lucky. That's that really a really great entrepreneurs.
0: Yeah, and I think that the focus um, that, you know, as a company to sit there and say, and I, I think it's it's commendable that you've taken this approach, is that, you know, we may not be the final destination, no pun intended, for some of our employees. But if we can help them get there, Um, you know, that's, it's all about benefiting it, it it creates that mutual beneficial relationship. Uh, and then that culture trickles down to where other people realize, you know, Hey, well, glow may be a starting point for me, but there'll be a great starting point for me. So I would imagine it's going to make it easier for you all to attract, you know, top talent, uh, down the line as well. Yeah.
1: And I think your, your point is straight on. I mean, uh, it's, you know, very few people, have their first job as their last job when they retire. And so that's just life. But, you know, we uh, strive to get a a great environment, a good working environment, a very cohesive environment. Uh, And we we put a lot of responsibility to people, uh, particularly, obviously, just by nature, pilots have great responsibility. But, you know, we, we look at ourselves and can face the reality that, you know, people will move on for whatever reason. Not not always batteries, and sometimes things happen, and people just have a change of lifestyle and whatnot. So, um, you know, it doesn't bother us. We, we are very prepared to handle that, and uh, we certainly think that, you know, if you're if you're a pilot looking to get in on the on the ground force somewhere, um, something new and exciting, particularly a startup, which you know most, most pilots never get to be a part of. Uh, we think that Glow is a great place, and we have you know probably the best um, offering out there for employees looking for that. So you know, we're pretty proud of that.
0: Sure. How are you handling all the regulations that come with handling that, especially in, in the airline industry, when it comes to hiring people, um, are there any union issues that you're facing right now or, and all, you know, in the union? Unionized, um, I, yeah, I think we're probably too small.
1: Sure. The union. I know if they know about us, but uh, yeah, that, that could come later when you're larger, but uh, regulatorily, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, there's a lot of them um, as you'd imagine, but, you know, it's it's probably not that unfamiliar from other people uh, that are this that require some type of you know drug testing program or uh, rules and regulations you can and can't do. And so, you know, from that regard, uh, it's not overly burdensome. Uh, it just obviously it's just it's just what you got, the rules you got to play by. But you know, like I said, there are a lot of them. They're not terribly confusing, but um, it's it really hasn't been once you just get your mind around this is how you have to operate and these these are the rules of the game. You just got to learn how to play the game. And once you do that, it really is no different than anything else.
0: Okay. So when it comes down to the passenger side, you mentioned uh, that your in-flight crew is the f- the front-facing uh, aspect of GLOW. What kind of training are you giving your employees? Um, you know, I think that a lot of times when you hear the nightmare, quote-unquote, scenarios of airlines, it's because of, a flight attendant in a bad mood, or you know, even a cancellation or a delay of some sort. Um, how are you going through that whole customer service aspect in an industry that's not necessarily known to be customer service friendly all the time? Yeah, no question.
1: Uh, you know, we, and we we get, I, and I'm very delighted, and uh, we share this with all of our crew. Uh, we we get at least two or three emails a week, or a, a Facebook post or a tweet or something saying hey, what. How great it was or how great this person was on the flight and geez it's wonderful and you know one of the things that we found and, and i kind of instituted at this at this, this level of service or customer service was to me and I, I fly way more than i should still um information is is very powerful for your customer and nothing is more frustrating when you're sitting there on the tarmac on their active runway taxiway for an hour and a half and you don't hear anything it's just well you know geez then all of a sudden, well, you know, I'll give an update in 10 minutes. And so even with the delay or cancellation, which fortunately there's been few, a few, uh, just a few, I should say, if you provide information to your passenger, that's number one. Most people don't mind. They understand, you know, aircraft sophisticated machine. We can't control the weather. If the airport in Little Rock is closed, well, there's not much we can do about it. Sure. And so just providing that information to that passenger, letting them know. And so they're not just sit stuck in limbo has been great. And we have given a lot of autonomy to our station managers and to our in-flight folks to rectify a problem where we can. And, 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 you know, that may be, you know, a great example. We had um, a big weather delay a couple of weeks back in Shreveport, excuse me, Little Rock. And uh, we were going on three hours delay and it was dinner time. So we uh, brought in dinner and we, we, we went to the food court across the way and, and had it catered and yeah, little stuff like that. And you, you obviously can't do that all the time, but we've right. allowed our we our station managers who are also big interfacing with customers and our in flight, you know, to, to do that. And they don't need to call me or call the the manager on duty to make sure it's okay to buy uh three bottles of water. I mean, it, it just do it. Right. Because at the end of the day, um, you know, we want the customers to come back and if they have a positive experience, that yeah, costs them a couple of bucks. But it's uh it's much better for us. And you know, really autonomy and information go in a long way.
0: Yeah, and I think that that is something that is being proven um, more and more in other industries uh, when it comes to customer services. The more autonomy, the more faith and trust you put in your employees, uh, the better products that you get. Um, so how are you dealing with the negative complaints? You know, not every company has a uh, clean record. So what are you doing now to kind of, Either jump ahead of or respond to some of the negative feedback that you're getting?
1: Well, the negative feedback, uh, when we do get it, is directly tied to a flight not operating or operating on a delayed basis. Um, even, you know, even, we, I mean, we we have uh, lost very few, but a couple of bags. By I me, mean lost, I mean we found it, made it on the aircraft. Sure. And that's a very frustrating experience, obviously. But, you know, going back to what I just said in the last segment, information is very key so if we if we see something coming if we know there's a weather front when really we delayed we get on the phone and start notifying us customers as early as possible and say listen your flight's gonna be an hour and a half late so don't come to the airport or, or wait a little while you do something else if you run that errand or whatnot and they're very appreciative of it um when you get a situation where a flight is delayed or canceled or things out of your control um there's not much you can do other than say you're very sorry we accommodate them and in some cases um, give them a voucher for future travel, or something like that. But you know, most most people that fly um, have been affected at one time or another by things that uh, it's just it's just a, a cost of doing business in the airline business is delays and cancellations, and you know a lot of that is not in our control. But most people are pretty good about it. Um, when We do a negative comment or review. I personally follow up with most of them and say, you know, how can we make it better for you? you know, I'm very sorry, and you know, help us improve. For the next person even if you decide you never want to file us again which hasn't really happened but you know you just got to reach out and like i said we empower our customer service reps uh, our station managers to do that and you know all the way up to me i mean i do it uh, all the time i mean i was doing it this morning for this for this video chat reaching out to customers and saying you know hey well let's thank you for let me know let's see what we can do and you know they're very appreciative of that
0: yeah and are you seeing or are you feeling that glow is being held to a higher standard than your typical than your big legacy carriers yeah. because you're trying to provide something different? I do. I actually do. It's a great point. I find that a lot
1: of people because they don't feel like they're going to get anywhere with it. So mm-hmm. if you fly on one of the majors or such behemoths, if they lose your bag or if you fly so late 45 minutes or an hour, they just have come to the conclusion that no matter what they do, it's not going to matter because the company is so large. Right. Because we are small and because we are very hands-on, I think we set a different standard for our customer and they what they expect back from us. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I don't know if one of these days i will generally it to be a good or a bad thing, but um, I think that the way that the majors and the larger businesses in the own world, um, you know, people just, just say, I'm not even, well, I don't care. I'm just, I'm right What am I going to do? Write a generic email to a, a 50,000 person company and hope to get a response. They just don't even do it. But with us, because we are very hands-on, I think we have raised the standard of what is appropriate and what our customers come to expect as far as interaction with with us.
0: And are you seeing a demand from your passengers for things that other, that the legacy carriers are uh, offering like mileage or are you guys pre-check? Is that something that you offer right now?
1: Uh, That's the number one question we get other than uh, destination suggestions, but we are in the uh, hopper with pre-check. We're not quite there yet. It's, really nothing uh more um than development and implementation but it's very tricky it's not an easy thing to do even at it for months and you know i keep reassuring people don't worry we're, we're getting there and we will uh are we were hopeful to possibly integrate at the end of the summer that's still out there um but you know these things and i would have to say um tsa gets a bad rap a lot of times but they're actually very helpful people and they are trying hard and uh We'll get there we also are in the process of rolling out our frequent traveler program which is not quite ready for introduction to the broader world but it's coming soon um you know but that being said you know, as far as expectations from the passenger I mean, we don't have ancillary fees i mean you don't pay for a seat assignment you don't pay for that bags you don't pay for food or drink um you don't pay print your boarding pass so that's been a, a quite interesting um experiment and a great relief to our customers. And so I think that only adds to, you know, your previous question about the standards of which we're presenting to our customer. And I think that creates a higher standard, which I think is good because it keeps us on our toes and it keeps the customer happy and it keeps
0: them coming back. Sure, sure. Now, I want to kind of touch on your day-to-day uh, as CEO of, of a new airline. Um, what does a typical day look like for you? Or is there a such a thing as a typical day?
1: There's really not a typical day. I have about three different days that are typical and briefly, you know, the first typical day would be uh, up at 435 out the door by 515 at the airport, getting ready, uh, spending a majority of the morning at the airport, talking with maintenance, talking with ops, talking with dispatchers, talking with uh, everybody, uh, customers, uh, welcoming people, boarding the planes. That's one day, which is the the day I really most enjoy because, you know, I love being out there and watching these things start up, spool up, spin out, take off. I like meeting the passengers. I like, um, you know, seeing the little kids get their pictures taken by the plane. You know, this is a unique thing. I mean, most people are so used to boarding that CO2, the jet bridge, uh, walking out on the ramp and getting to see the aircraft and touch it and see it. And it's kind of a neat experience for most people because they don't do that anymore. So that's really enjoyable. And that, that would be my typical day. that I I enjoy the most. My second typical day would be uh, wearing the chief salesperson's hat, um, which is what I've become, I guess, effectively. I mean, uh, you know, doing, doing things like this, doing, doing media or or getting interviews or going on shows or meeting with uh, chambers and business bureaus and things like that to educate, because, you know, we have spent a lot of money and a whole lot of time getting our brand out there. So people know about us, but you'd be amazed. I mean, people even locally here in New Orleans. So it's, it's, we're constantly hammering that, or at least I am. That's my second typical type of day, which is, you know, pretty heavily booked when it comes to um, educational type meetings, I guess, and sales meetings. And, you know, my, my third typical day is uh, trying to raise money and, and trying to, you know, deal with lawyers and bankers and accountants and trying to keep everything, everything spinning. So, you know, frankly, Usually, my typical day is a portion of all three of those typical days. But, you know, I, I try to, um, when it first starts at the ramp every morning, seven days a week, uh, I have relinquished some of that to our managers because they're doing such a great job. Uh, and there's no, you know, I don't, I don't want to micromanage them at that level because uh, it's their office and they're running well and they don't need me. But I like to be there, as I said, as a customer interface. I think that's great. I really enjoy that. Uh, but as we've matured a little bit here in the last few months, it really has become more of a sales and marketing position for myself and uh, a teacher, an ed- educator on on the model and on the service and you know, trying to get uh, those additional customers.
0: And how do you go about prioritizing all the different things when, when I would imagine everything uh, that you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis is probably priority number one. Um, how do you go about figuring out, okay, this has to happen. You know, I have to call this customer back before I call this investor or et cetera. Whose screen's loudest? Um, I'm kidding, but
1: um, <laughs> I mean that's that. You know, sometimes that's just how it is. Um, sure. You know, I, I don't. I, I don't know. Other than yeah. uh, there's so many things that happen that I would consider a priority. You know, if this if this if, if this happened in my personal life and just as a as a person going about my daily routine, it would be an alarming thing to have to address. But a lot of these things um, they just stack up, and 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 they're all bad uh they're not all negative things you have to go take care of so a lot of them are positive things um sure. but they require attention so it's very difficult and you have to find a group of people that you can delegate some of it to. And that's always been you know an answer to the silly questions what's your greatest weakness or you know what are you terrible at? Well nobody wants to give you an answer, at least I know. Right. But I've always felt that I I had a hard time relinquishing delegating things to people because i just figured i could do it how i wanted it done and do it better and i've learned that that's not always the case and it's been a great relief for me to have super quality folks i mean i've got two folks that are very close to the business very close to me and very loyal to the company they don't do anything i ask them to do and they've never no one's ever said no and i think that's because they believe in the business i think it's because we treat them well and they feel vested in what we're doing and so you know that that allows me to be more autonomous in doing the things like you mentioned that are super important or what has to be attended to now. But they're, they're so different, and they change every day and there's so many. It's it's hard to it's hard to give you a list. And pretty much anything you can imagine happens yeah. almost a daily basis. But you know, it's been good that we've learned to um, work as a great team and, and we're able to kind of tackle all these issues, not just by myself but folks on
0: and now so you're eight months from your first flight uh, or uh, roughly around eight months, I guess. Um, is is there a time where you're looking back now and you're saying this is the highlight? You mean, could you imagine when you were what was it? I guess what was it like seeing that being on that first flight, you know, knowing that this was real for you after yeah. starting in 2010 and going? and. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, it was uh
1: you know, it's funny because you, you, you just, I, I guess people just assume when you when you go to an airport that it's, you know, because you walk into the airport, there's seats for you, there's a water fountain for you, there's a trash can for you, and all those different things. But when you walk in there as a tenant, there's nothing there. Right. You know, we walked into our office, and it was just a blank office, and we all kind of thought, well, I guess we thought we'd have a desk or something here, but there's nothing. <laughs> there. so we had to go you know, create an office, which we did, of course. But even running in up to the first flight, I mean, we were like, "Oh, geez, we forgot the to paper for towels or this," and you know, we're running back and forth to the corner store and the Walmart, etc. But you know, I tell the story, and it's true. It's amazing. The first flight was incredible. I mean, we had a full house. A lot of VIPs. We actually had six paying customers, which was great. Um, uh, met the I checked in the very first customer, which was cool. Um, he he thought it was cool too. But it was amazing. We got on the flight. A beautiful flight. A lot of celebratory. Uh, announcements and chats and giveaways and things and we got up to Little Rock and my contingent we all went downtown to the hotel and we were you know, having a big time and had a nice uh, casual dinner and lots of drinks flowing here and there so um, I was sitting on the balcony kind of after everybody had gone to bed and uh, I decided I would go to sleep and I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning and I said oh my god I, it, the realization it hit me that, yes, we just done our first flight, but the realization came to mind that we had to start doing it all over again the next day. And it wasn't, you know, most, helping that brand, you worked so hard for us with so much time, so much money, so much heartache to get there. Playing lifted off, it was like, holy cow, we did it. But the realization was not there until I really calmed down that, okay, we have to do this now every day, six times a day, at least the rest of our lives, we make it. So, that was an interesting uh, realization that I had. Um, it, it wasn't just you know, it's not, it's not like when you graduate from high school, like oh I did yeah, it, you're done. Yeah. <laughs> but we did it, and we got to keep doing it. And so uh, I guess I just we worked so hard for that first flight that when we finally got there, all of our energy was focused on the on that November flight, and we did it. It was finally like okay, and then we realized like uh oh. Um, so that was that
0: was pretty cool. Yeah. And now. How, I'm sure there are plenty of times where this has come across, but where was the point where at one point where you were like, you know, this is just not going to happen. And how did I you not, and not, not just that. Don't just describe that point, but also talk about how did you get through that?
1: Well, there's been two or three of those points. And as I alluded to in kind of the first section of this talk, um, you know, a lot of this hinges on money. Uh, everything does. Uh, a lot of this hinges on uh, getting the right deal with the regulations and etc etc and we we started and stopped two or three times and the hardest one you know was uh 2000 you know just before 2000 2012 we thought we were uh there and it was just it was crushing because we put all these things together and we, we were ready to execute and then we we lost our way on the financing side and you know it was a pretty tough blow i mean we I, I sat back for, we, we, I don't want to say disbanded, but we all kind of took a break. And, um, you know, we had a couple of months there and we rounded everybody back up and said, okay, you in? you want to do this? And every single person involved probably said, absolutely. And so, you know, it was really hard because it was a lot of, um, it's just a lot of risk. You know, it's a whole lot of risk. And um, it's, it's like, I never questioned what I wanted to go for. I always did. It was just a matter of how we were going to do it. And, you know, like I, I told somebody once, I mean, the only advice I can give somebody, you know, adopt the dog, find a good bourbon you like, fight like hell, uh, and marry your best friend, because that's that's the only things that are guaranteed. And, you know, no one's was going to walk into our my house or my office and say, well, geez, Trey, I heard about your great idea to start a regional air carrier. Like, here's the money. It just doesn't work that way. And so I just rededicated myself um, and just got back out there and just... Banged away, and you know, ultimately, um, you know, we never knew we were going to get there until that first flight took off, and we did know. But it was we, once the ball started rolling down that hill, we knew we would get in the air. It was just a question of the timing, make sure everything was right. But prior to that, you know, it's just really, it's really difficult. Um, it was very difficult, it was emotionally difficult, uh, mentally. My brain was, I had had it. Um, but you know, obviously, we, we got back together, regrouped, and we went.
0: And did you see the people that? you had gotten, I guess that probably was one of the biggest tests for you to determine who was in and who was out. Um, but out of the group that was in, did they come back almost re-energized and reinvigorated or, or was it, was there some morale that you had to then as the leader build back up? Uh, a little of both uh, because you start,
1: you know, when, you, when you're out there trying to put a deal together, I don't care what business it is. I mean, they all kind of take on a similar path I and mean, there's no you know the, all the due diligence and all the modeling and all of this and you know they're it's all the same end of the day i mean it's it's it really is i don't care where you are and so you know gearing back up for that mentally for some of our people was difficult because you've just gone through it for four or five or six months seven months with this one group and they're ready to go and you you know re-theorize everything remodeled everything got new bids got all this and then all falls apart, so when you go with somebody else to find a new interest, group, you gotta do it all again. And it' sure. and it's repetitive in the sense that you know what you put out there is correct really do it. So you know, that that was um, that took a little motivation for all of us, I think, because we've just gone through it. And of course when you you can only cry wolf so many times, and so when you go back to the same vendors and say, Well, we're back again, yeah, okay. But fortunately in this business, this is not an uncommon occurrence. And so um, as big as this business is, it's a very small world. And so these, these people and these partners we have are all very um, understanding of that. And so it made it a little easier for us. But as far as elephant goal, I mean, no one came back and questioned what we were doing. It was just getting the energy back to yeah. put it back together.
0: Now, I want to spend the next – we've got a few minutes left before I, before I have taken up all the time you've given us. But uh, I, so I want to kind of talk about the future, what that looks like. And I know that that's probably – hard to think about when you're not even a year in and you're still trying to keep all the existing balls in the air. Um, but I'm assuming there's plans to expand at some point. Absolutely. Uh,
1: we are in the process now of bringing an additional lift, additional aircraft. Um, we will do that here shortly. Uh, we will be announcing, uh, new destinations. Uh, also shortly. I can't quite tell you where yet. Cause it is <clears throat> not available for public knowledge, but <coughs> excuse me. Um, yeah, I mean, we will definitely be expanding. I mean, you have to grow. You can't You can't stay where you are. You have to grow. And so we've always had that plan. That's always been part of the bigger picture. And we're right at where we need to be to start growing. And so we follow along well with our plan. We have to adjust a little bit here and there, But, you know, there's some uh, new cities coming on. board here shortly. There's more aircraft coming in. And, of course, by that, we'll have more staff, more pilots, and more hiring. So we're looking forward to it. Uh, it's going to be... It's always challenging, but it's certainly um, looking really forward to getting out there and spreading low out, uh, even our based right
0: now. And now, the, the other thing that I'm interested in, in kind of talking about, is uh, this whole concept of the black card, you know, the, the membership. Uh, I know Surf Air out in, in the West Coast is doing something similar. Um, and there's this resurgence of regional carriers. I believe Silver is, is doing it in Florida. Um, is that something that you're seeing kind of a a monthly membership type all all you know as many flights as you need on a monthly membership type model? Well, we've looked at that
1: and and I don't want to give away totally the black card when we before we announce it, but there is some flavor of that, but you know looking at that type of model specifically the company you brought up, we looked at that um, that model has been copied few times around the country, some with success, some without success. Um, You know, in this area of the world, um, I'm not sure that that model would be functional. Um, And it it really has to do with numerosity of people and the amount of people that would be interested or could afford, frankly, a monthly membership fee and a tagline fee for every flight. I mean, you could do it at at a smaller dollar value. But... You know, we don't have the concentration of wealth or the population of the California uh, or sure. Texas. That presents, in my mind, some challenges to that specific type of model. I, I think it's a brilliant idea. I think it's a great model. Um, I'm not certain, I'm not sold on that type of thing working here. But you know, as far as our programs, loyalty programs, and black card programs, um, we're working very closely with our marketing
0: PR firms, and we're going to have something roll out here pretty shortly. Very cool. Yeah, I would imagine that that type of model, like you said, is, is regional based based on how many corporate jets are, are in the air at any given time um, in San Francisco or in California when there's all those tech companies scattered all across the California coast. And it takes five hours to get, you know, what would typically take two because of the mountain ranges and everything else you got to kind of wind around. Uh, I would imagine a black card membership to a to an airline is still cheaper than putting a King Air in the sky for one vice president. Question. Uh, Question.
1: I mean, uh, executive aviation, private aviation is a wonderful thing and it can be a fabulous tool. But you know, end of the day, you you've been seeing larger companies now shedding their flight departments simply because it is it's just very expensive. And, and yes, you can make the economic argument that senior management are moving people around. Time of money and it certainly is and, and there are justifications for it um individually um people are finding it more difficult to make those types of justifications and so having somebody like glow to be able to provide that service for you um at a very reasonable price into places that frankly prior to us the only way to reach them was to drive or do a private charter or you know, hop over a hub and take two days there and back and so you know we, we've offered a lot of We've seen a lot, I should say, of corporate travel, people come to us and say, geez, you know, we were taking the King Air up there a couple of times a month, but this is great. Um, And, you know, they frankly got rid of the airplane. So, I mean, that's not keeping us in business, but it's it's definitely a sector of the market that uh, we were attracting with more service.
0: And do you see that this regional, I mean, we talked about silver in Florida and and obviously you all kind of do in the Gulf Coast, but... Do you see this business model working in other parts of the country as well? I mean, is there a Midwestern uh, Indianapolis? To- they do, and then that's part of our larger growth strategy. I mean, you know, the, the idea never was,
1: let's get three solve and run them out of New Orleans. I mean, that was the idea to start. Sure. That was- so we see a lot of cities in our current root network, our coming root network that offer the same type and have the same need uh, that New Orleans does when it comes to accessing regional points directly. And so, if you look at the Gulf and Mid-South uh, geographically, it's well suited for that. Um, the Mountain West is largely well covered, but geographically, it's probably not as suited. Cities are further apart, etc. And the Northeast, of course, you have plenty of air coverage, but you also have the trains, and so that is probably not a market of which um, we would explore. But there, there are plenty of other opportunities you know, kind of our area of the world to to expand glow too.
0: And it is a, is it a first mover advantage? I mean, you guys are are doing this in, in sobs, but, and I don't mean to put a lot of questions, but I'm going to assume I'm going to ask any questions you haven't already heard before, but what happens when Delta United throws in an RJ and, and starts directly competing? Well, I would say this,
1: uh, that, that is always a concern. Um, there's nothing we can do about it other than uh, just have a better product, have a better point, have a better value proposition to the customer. I will say though that these large airlines now have, maybe in the past, they would have said, oh, well, let's go stamp out Glow and put a 737 in Shreveport, in New Orleans. You know, I don't think you're going to see a lot of that anymore because the airlines have really now focused less on market share, more on making money. Mm-hmm. And to take a 737 out of service, from a loop, more lucrative route for them and dumping on top of GLOW between Shreveport and New Orleans twice a day would be an irrational business decision. And airlines have gotten a whole lot better not making those. And so I don't foresee, at least we don't foresee, a major wasting their time and their fuel and their, their plane availability and their revenue possibilities uh, with GLOW. And you know, one example people always ask me is like, well, you know, geez, this airline used to fly six times a day between here and here, why don't they do that anymore? The planes are always full. And the simple answer is they could make more money with the airplane somewhere else. I mean, yeah. they're not going they to maximize your assets. And so for these airlines, as they get larger aircraft, and if you notice the larger major airlines are not getting smaller airplanes, they're getting bigger airplanes. And the average gauge of aircraft is up now at almost 100 seats, I think. It yeah. wasn't 75 years ago. So these planes are getting bigger. And so when you look at the size of our 30 seats, taking 160 seats, 737, uh, is, it would be an illogical move in our view for a for a major airline and a poor use of their assets um you know that being said they could do it um but you know as far as what we see as competition yeah first mover advantage i mean obviously the road is and uh obviously somebody else uh copycat mimic what we're doing sure. i was saying that I had a pretty good head start on a copycat uh service simply because yeah. of, i know what it takes to do this and yep. If I gave you all the money in the world and started the clock, could you do it faster? Yeah, probably. Um, but could you do it in an amount of time to where you would disrupt glow? Uh, you know, we have to guard for that. But I, I'm not, uh, there's not too many more crazy people like me in the world that would grow There's one somewhere, don't get me wrong. But, you know, I think that naturally um, there's a pretty high bearish entry in this business. Uh, but again, that's not to say it won't happen. And we are always fight against that. But, you know, I, I don't see, a left hook coming from the majors at this point, I think, you know, why, you know, why, why, why? Right. um, you never know, but we're we always starting to get but I think that our value proposition, our price points, our customer interaction and our personal touch is just, it's a really, and you know, people like to support local things and new things too, which is also helpful. But you know, if, if somebody were to throw another airplane on the road, uh, with, with a, you, know, you have to watch for that, but you know, we are doing everything to promote ourselves and to keep our reputation high and to keep our customers very happy.
0: All right. All right. Well, I think that's it. Uh, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I do appreciate you spending the past hour talking about this. Uh, I definitely am looking forward to seeing the future of, uh, of the airline and, and how you all grow and having you back, of course, uh, and talking about lessons learned over the past year or, or, whatever else, whenever else we can get you to come back. But um, is there any, any other announcements you want to make or kind of plug social media links and, and all that sure. kind of stuff? I'd love to have you check us out and learn more about us. I mean, uh, flyglow.com. Uh,
1: we're on Facebook, flyglow and our Twitter handle. I think is on t- that yep. so. He's back flyglow. So now announced uh, our fair specials and sales, etc. contests. We do a lot of that stuff. Uh, that's all over on our social media and our website. So, you know, you can find out more if you have any questions. Uh, you can email us at info at flaglow.com and we'll get back to you. Um, that's really it. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for having us on.
0: Yeah, I will say that some of the specials you guys offer uh, are are incredibly enticing. Uh, I think you guys were just doing a $50 trip to Destin out of New Orleans recently. Yeah, first um, flight this Friday, between now and into the summer, out of the New Orleans market to Destin, Fort Walton
1: Beach is 50 bucks each way. So, and you can't drive there for that. No, that's, that's
0: cheaper than gas. So
1: <laughs> <laughs> It starts, uh, starts Friday, 1 PM. Uh, we'll running every Friday and Monday. Being be now Labor Day. And, um, we'd love to, love to get some New Orleans or some folks in the Panhandle of Florida coming over here. So look it up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right, Trey. Well, thank you so much again. And, uh, we'll be in touch. Thanks so much. Take care. So that concludes another episode of the Runway VC podcast. Once again, we want to thank Trey for joining us on this episode. If you want to learn more about Glow and what they're up to, we'll drop some links to their social media in the show notes, as well as to their own page, so you can book your own flight and let us know how it goes. We also want to thank Bruno Masson for that intro music. Bruno does a great job with taking aviation sounds and incorporating them into music. You can check out his other songs at brunomasone.com. If you like this interview and want to hear more, make sure you're subscribed to iTunes or Stitcher by just searching runway.vc and hitting that subscribe button. As always, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.